Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. By any means necessary, When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year, Zachary Davis, Jane Redfin, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Cyanide, Free, Redred Winch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, B.T. Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner. A podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who's 37.8 uh, degrees north and 122 degrees 0.3 minutes west, which puts me in Oakland in California. And with me is Claire Asprey. Where are you today, Claire? Hi, Royfield. Today, I'm in my usual resting place. Uh, God, that sounds like I'm dead. I'm not dead. I'm in my usual home of uh, 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east in Bedfordshire, UK. Map Corner is the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things Carter Filling. So if Peter's your projection, folks, you're in the right place. This month, we are bringing together geography and history, which goes well with Royfield because he loves a bit of both, and um, me too, uh, with our guest, Rajad Lynch, from the Waterfall History channel on YouTube. Uh, so Rajad posts really fascinating videos around combining sort of facts with speculation about alternative historical outcomes, and they're heavy on the maps, which we all love. 
Uh, don't forget, folks, to review us on Apple iTunes. If you are watching us over on YouTube, maybe on Rod Yard's channel or on my YouTube channel, this is a podcast. Why don't you go and subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice? We're live in all sorts of ways this time. So uh, as usual, we're doing this on live with uh, uh, Map Corner listeners and also some of Rudyard's patrons on Zoom. But it's great to have that extra reach for YouTube watchers right now. We record every first Saturday of the month, which is 6pm UK time, uh, which translates to being 1pm Eastern and 10am Pacific. Right. And uh, if you want to join in, obviously join the Map Corner Facebook group and you'll get the links there for the Zoom every month. I love me some history, as Claire says, and I definitely love me some geography. So it's a great honour that we have uh, Rudyard Lynch, who manages to combine that, but also with a certain amount of geopolitics and with some kind of creative thinking. Rudyard, welcome to Map Corner. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be here. What is alternative history for those of us that maybe don't know? It's basically the process of you take something in history and see how the world would have progressed afterwards if that thing had gone differently. So what would modern Europe and the world be like if the Roman Empire had never fallen? The most common example, and I think over half the sales of the entire alter history genre, is what if the Nazis won World War II? And it's basically as simple as that, where you take a point in history, then you change a variable, and then you see how the rest of history would have progressed differently. And how did you get into it, sir? Um, um, actually, you've got somewhat of an extensive channel, so let's go all yeah. the way back to the very beginning. So, um, as a punk-ass teen, I was reading um, a book series called The Time Riders, and it's a time travel series, it's great YA, and it has a series of alternate history scenarios, and I just found them absolutely fascinating. I loved history ever since I was really little. I got into it because I love mythology so much, and uh, it was just amazing to me that I love people like Thor, like Hercules and stuff. And for real history, it just shocked me that people that amazing or close to it actually existed. And I loved history because of that. And I was reading this YA book and the alternate histories in it actually weren't that good. And so it got me thinking about how I would have made those alternate histories differently. Like it has the Germans seizing all of North America in World War II. It had stuff like the dinosaurs getting wiped out and not getting wiped out and evolving into a sentient species later on. And I founded the channel not for any real reason, but just because I wanted to have a platform to really talk about all this stuff, because I didn't really have like a group of friends or stuff where I could discuss these really weird abstract ideas. So I was just screaming into the void. And over time, people started listening to my random screamings into the void. And that's how the channel grew. So you started the channel to because you had no friends, to make friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's just an unexpected side effect, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the unexpected side effect is this career. Um, and that this has basically become a significant part of my life. Well, that's the, that's the amazing thing. When we, when we chatted yesterday and we, and we did a, a little bit of a test, um, yeah. That this really has exploded for you, and this is yeah, this is your job. This is your living now. Yeah, yeah. This is my source of income. This is what I do now. It's it's yeah. You, you could you can really live off this. It's for people who want to become YouTubers. It is a feasible. It is a feasible lifestyle if you can get it past a certain range. 
Well, dude, um, I need to take some lessons from you because I'm still scrambling, <laughs> scrambling around here for, for, for pennies. But okay, so alternative history. This is what I fundamentally know about alternative history. Um, there are really popular departure points. And as you've said, you've already given us one, which is what if the Germans had won uh, the Second World War? The other one, which is incredibly popular, definitely for, for Americans, is what if the South had won the Civil War? Give us some other, give us maybe two or three okay. departure points in history, which alternative history aficionados love and adore. Okay. Um, what if the Roman Empire never fell is one of the very key ones, as is what if the Soviet Union had won the Cold War? A really big one, and this isn't especially history people, because history people tend to not be that good at the sciences, is what if the dinosaurs never went extinct? I would think those few have the biggest market share of all of them. You get a couple other ones, like what if the Native Americans are able to beat back the Europeans? But I'd say that those have the biggest market share. I watched one this week around, which I quite, I liked, um, which was around yeah. what if the Danish invasion, no, the, the, the Norwegian invasion had won in 1066 and beaten back the yeah. war. What I really liked about that was also that you've given quite a lot of thought about how it would happen. It wasn't just saying, well, just imagine this. It was like, well, how might that have happened in the first place? And thinking yeah. about timing. And so, like, you know, it's it's not just about taking yes. an outcome or a, a change, just but, but also thinking about how it might have been feasible, um, yes. which I think is also, you know, just goes to show that, you know, like life has got a lot of variables and uh, it's, it, it's good to know how we might think about those like very small things that would yeah. be different that make a collective difference. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's very true. I think it's alternate history basically taught me how complicated the world is and how many different flowing parts there is, because I think basically every, every male history buff at least got into it from military history. And like, they're like, if I could change this one battle, how would the rest of this war had gone differently? But I think after a certain point with alternate history, you have to realize that stuff like culture, stuff like governance structure, stuff like ideology really does matter. And so like for me, I started out doing the whole military history stuff, like playing Age of Empires and Total War and games like that. And over time, the more you get sucked into it, the more it becomes a whole culture, demographics, all that stuff. Government styles. Yeah, you, it's very much a rabbit hole. But you're very um, map heavy in terms of the, which is why we like it, uh, in terms of the videos. So are you particularly drawn to things that you can demonstrate, I guess, on a map? Because there are, there are different ways of presenting these stories. Yeah. Isn't there? And, uh, and it feels like the, the maps are the kind of medium that you enjoy best. I am kind of obsessed with maps, not going to lie. Um, and I, I mean, I do try to respect stuff that you can't betray on a map. Like... So I was reading this book by Peter Turchin that talks about society's asabia or their like collective um, or their sense of like collective identity. So like North Italy versus South Italy, the trains run on better time, less corruption. And that's something you just can't map at all. And but I think at the same time, it's very important. I mean, I do think your argument has validity where once you rely heavily on one medium, you're kind of it becomes easier to forget about the other ones and to forget what that medium doesn't represent. And when you're putting that together for the videos, are you how are you make, making or sourcing those maps? A lot of the videos, it's just stuff I know already. So I have a general understanding of what Europe looked like in 1700. I would reference a, cover, a couple other people's maps to see if what I'm doing is accurate. Most of my information I get is just stuff that's online. And because 
it's difficult to source stuff that's not online. So in my ethnic map of the world, for, for example, I looked at old Soviet maps of Siberia and then tried to figure out what the ethnic map of Siberia looked like based off that. I must admit, the, the, the maps are definitely something which kind of drew me in. And as little 12-year-old me, I was forever doing uh, alternative map maps of the world based on nothing else other than wouldn't it be nice if I don't know, Romania had an empire type of thing and it spread into <laughs> Africa. So, but, yeah. but, but one of the great things about what you do is you've backed it up with some really good scholarly research, haven't you? And so it isn't just a, a flight of fancy when, when, you, when you create your map and you have your scenario. So maybe tell us some of the kind of sources that you draw upon for your alternative scenario so that it's actually plausible that if this battle or if this thing had gone another way, the world as it is um, that you propose would actually be plausible, would be realistic. I, I make no pretensions to being plausible. I'm basically betting against God here. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I read a lot. I'm not going to give you credentials I don't have. I haven't finished college. Uh, I have no credentials to speak of in a traditional sense, but I, I read a tremendous amount. And I try to read big picture books that talk about the underlying structure of how history works. So I love, I love my Peter Turchins, love my... Um, William McNeil's, all that stuff. And so I try to figure out the processes of how societies form, what weakens them, um, and all that stuff. And then I try to use those projections to figure out how things could have gone differently. So, okay, let's give us one, give us one departure point and let's do the pretty standard one. Um, at what point could the Germans have won the Second World War? Give us a plausible well, departure point. Well, this one is going to, my fans are going to get absolutely bent out of shape about this one because World War II is so contentious. But um, if I had to pick a single point, it would be the U.S. not entering into the war against Germany because the U.S. just brought so much material against the Germans that after that point, there was basically no way the Germans could have won the war. And I don't think the Germans would be able to fully beat the Russians in the East but a couple variables like the like the American bombing of German industrial sectors basically prevented German industrial growth from reaching a massive rate from which it could have dealt with the Russians more effectively. And also just pulling men away from the Eastern Front and the massive amount of materiel the Americans sent the Russians. So I think that the Russians and the Germans under those circumstances would have probably fought to a standstill somewhere in central Ukraine. Um, and also, you've got to consider that there's no way the British were able to open up a front in the West without the Americans. Um, and if you wanted to have a larger German empire, I think the best point of departure would be German seizure of Moscow in, um, in 1941. Oh, December. Um, I'm yeah. going to, um, all right, here we go, right? Let's yes. see, pull, pull some holes in, in your argument here. Yes. Right? So... Yeah. Uh, the Soviets had plans to completely remove all of their industry behind the Urals and actually did a yeah. lot of that anyway when the Germans came to yeah. the skirts of Moscow in 1941. If we look at D-Day 1944, a month after D-Day, four-fifths of the German army is fighting the Russians, right? So that's how serious 
the the Germans took the Allied. Yes. Well, I put it to you, sir. I put it to you, right? That the okay. point of departure is uh, Winston Churchill not becoming prime minister, and Lord Halifax saying to to cabinet, right? We need to come to accommodation with the Germans. That accommodation been happening. The neutralization of yes. the British Navy, uh, and then we have an invasion of Russia, which happens 1942-1943, when the German yeah. industrial complex is much stronger. Boom. There you go. I mean, that's entirely reasonable. I agree with you. And you're a British person, and so you'll say Britain was decisive, and I'm an American, so I'll say America was decisive. If, <laughs> if, if we brought Yuri in, he'd say that... Um, the Red Army's defeat of um, of the Germans at Stalingrad at Operation Uranus was decisive, and we'd all be right. Those were all points where if the Germans had played their cards right, they could have won the war. I mean, I actually think the Western influence was more important for the um, for against the Germans by weakening their industrial sector than it was by actually pulling troops away from the frontier. But that that's a separate topic. Fair enough. And fundamentally, um, this is a show about maps. So uh, yeah. tell us, I know Claire has mentioned, mentioned maps before. Give us a little bit of detail about, you know, maybe sources of how, how you put your maps together. Give, give us a map which you're particularly proud of, uh, which had a lot of scholarly work, but also looked really pretty. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got loads of moderators who tell me all my maps suck and make maps way prettier than mine. Um, one of my best friendships actually started from a guy who sent me images of my own maps better done than the ones I had made. And I'd tell you lots of people who'd say that my maps aren't that scholarly, but I'm probably most proud of my ethnic map of the world because actually my lingual map of the world, my ethnic map of the world is fairly derivative of my lingual one, but my lingual one was so much work. It was Doing the research for each language in New Guinea and Cameroon took me took me a month, basically, where I had to go through different uh, different maps of the same area. And often the sources are just pretty contradictory, where a different map of West African languages or Indonesian languages is just entirely different from another one. And I don't know which map is accurate. And so lang languages was very difficult. After that, the ethnic map of America is one I'm very proud of because figuring out American ethnicity is very difficult because the ancestries that people file on the census from, we've, from genetics, from last names, are not that accurate of what actual ancestry is. Um, your average American is many different countries. Your average African-American has ancestry from Cameroon, Nigeria, the Congo. Average European-American has ancestry from Germany, Britain, Ireland, Asian, probably the Philippines and China, et cetera. And so it's very difficult to break it into different sections. And so I had to do a huge amount of research on various settlement patterns in early America to say, this area had slightly more German ancestry than this area that had slightly more English, that this more than slightly more Finnish. So that map was a lot of research, and I had to read a lot of histories of early America to do that. So it's a lot of work, isn't it? Um, it comes together on a comparatively short video, but actually there's a huge amount that goes into those. Um, I guess like anything, it's, it's, you know, it's the research that, that takes the time and, and, making the, and making the pictures. Are there parts of the world that hold your interest more on a sort of geographical level? I once made a map of the areas of the world I've read the most history about, and none of my fans will ever see it because then they'll criticize it. But um, the area I've read the most about is England, followed by the north of France. 
And then after that, followed by the former Roman Empire. The part of America I've read the most about is actually East Tennessee, surprisingly. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a strange area of the world I, I had a, a fascination with. But I mean, in general, I, I try to read about everywhere. If I know there's an area I don't know a lot, I'll, I'll actively reach out to find a book about it. Well, I really enjoyed your video about places that have got really interesting stories, but no one knows very much about. But yeah. don't think too much about that because quite a lot of that coming up in the quiz. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it really annoys me how often Eurocentric history is where like, I get most people don't know a lot of history. And so people prioritize the stuff that's kind of similar to them and is clo- like history before 1800 is the exact same way where there's very little about it. But you've got so much awesome history from other parts of the world that just no one talks about. Like, I wish the War of the Triple Alliance was something was it was a household term because Francisco Solano Lopez, he's basically a film character um, and all that sort of thing. You know what? I, I couldn't agree more. And when you think of the depopulation that went on in Paraguay because of this, uh, this yeah. maniac's uh, desire to invade Brazil and Argentina with this m- yeah. minuscule population, you know, arguably Paraguay is depopulated to this day. But Paraguay yeah. is uh, one of the questions in our quiz. So this is the time where if you have paper and pen, uh, you should maybe get paper and pen together and you can play along with our quiz. If you're watching on YouTube, um, why don't you do that? Uh, So each month we have a map corner quiz and it's based around uh, our interviewee. So uh, Claire Asprey's put these questions together. These questions are most awesome. Right. Yeah, and I would just say it's another one of those months in which you're probably going to guess more than you know. I, Unless I you're a judge, but that's kind of cheating. Cause I we... did a certain amount of guessing here as well. It has to be said. Right, so... Like you had a month last month. This month we've gone hard again. <laughs> question number one. Which of these nations does Rudyard not tip for Superbad status in 2080? Does not tip. Is it A, India, B, France, or C, Australia. Are we going to have a mighty Australian empire come 2080? Which ones, which of these nations does Rudyard not tip for superpower status in 2080? That's question number one. Question number two. Right now, uh, Rudyard, can you pronounce this, please? Where are the, where are the Shuarism based? Is it A, yes. Turkey, B, Uzbekistan, C, Mongolia? So where are the, Warism based. <laughs> you, you can call them Khorasan. That's the easier term. <laughs> that's what. That's what I knew it as. But I thought you know, ugh, yeah. well, the scholars. Uh, um, yeah. It, uh, I've heard. Uh, sorry. A Turkey, B Uzbekistan, C Mongolia. Which of these countries wasn't part of the Austro-Indian migration? A New Zealand, B Cambodia, C Madagascar. Which of these countries wasn't part of the Austronesian migration? A, New Zealand. B, Cambodia. C, Madagascar. This chat really knows its stuff. Well, (laughs) because they watch your videos. They watch your videos. Question number four. What was it once illegal to sell in Iceland? A, cod. B, alcohol. C, flags. What was it once illegal to sell in Iceland? Was it A, cod? They beat Britain three times in the cod war, did the Icelandics. Uh, B, alcohol. C, flags. 
Question number five. To what does Rudyard credit the establishment of Paraguay by Spanish settlers? Was it A, farming, B, polygamy, C, famine? So was it A, farming, B, polygamy, or C, famine? Question number six. Hmm. It's another one of those where you might need to help me with the pronunciation, Mr. Lynch. Where is the man-made island of... Pompeii. Again, I don't speak there. I don't speak Polynesian, but I assume that's how it's you pronounced. Can't say Polynesian. Just giving the answer away, man. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just here to educate you all. <laughs> is is Polynesia in the Caribbean? Is Polynesia yes. in the Atlantic? Or is as we all know, Polynesia is in the Caribbean. <laughs> or is Polynesia in the Pacific? <laughs> So where is the man-made island of Pompeii? Is it in the Caribbean, the Atlantic, or the Pacific? Question number seven. I got this one wrong. What, what proportion of the British Empire population was Indian in 1925? 40%, B, 60%, or C, 70%? What proportion of the British Empire population was Indian in 1925? 40%, 60% or 70 Andy Gladwin is uh, working away at the answers there. Yes, sir, I'm looking at you. Scribbling it down, working it out. Last question. Where have we found potential evidence that the Romans may, stress on the word may, have discovered the Americas? Was the evidence found on the Brazilian coast? Was it found in Florida? Or C, found in Panama. There you go, folks. There are our quiz questions. But now it's the time, folks, where you can ask a question of um, our esteemed guest. So if you are on, uh, if you are on Zoom, hello Fiona Powell, hello Ken McDonald, hello Sarah Spilsbury. Hey Sarah, Heltor, um, you look new. Um, are you um, Heltor a Map Corner person, or you one of Rodyard Lynch's uh, Patreons? Tell us who you are. Yes. Hello, I'm in his patron. Ah, cool. Well, this, this is this is your moment to ask uh, the person who you give some of your hard-earned money to each yeah, yeah. question. Hello, man. Nice to meet you. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan nice from Rio you. in Brazil. Hmm. I study history as well. I would like to know if you have ever been able to read something about the history of Brazil, because I know like there are very few translations available. I've never read a full book on Brazilian history. I've read a couple of Latin American histories with extensive parts in it. So I read a 1,000-page history of Latin America that had a 200-page segment on Brazil and a couple stuff like that. I recognize your name, actually, from my Patreon. Do we have another question? I must admit, I'm always fascinated by Brazilian history. I've got a little, little bit of a soft spot, considering I'm a proper lefty. Uh, I've got a soft spot for monarchies, and Brazil always has this weird bit of history, doesn't it? The fact that it's the only time a European country has been ruled by uh, somebody in, in, in the New World. Yes. So you have uh, Pedro I, uh, who was also um, king of Portugal, but emperor of Brazil for a time. Oh, yeah. So. yeah, we had actually uh, the king of Portugal. Uh, he fled from uh, the inv Napoleonic invasion, uh -huh. and he went to Rio. So uh, for like some time, Portugal was ruled from Brazil. Uh, Belloc, do you have any recommendations for Brazilian histories for me? I have a very good book called Empire Adrift. It's from Patrick okay. Wilkin. It's about the okay. Portuguese court in Rio de Janeiro. Empire Adrift. 
Do we have another question for our esteemed guest? Pat? Hi, I'd just like to know if your travels through history and around the world ever include in-person travel. Have you gone places and tried to imagine what it would look like there if something else had happened? Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the big examples of that was when I was in Turkey and I was walking through the Hagia Sophia and I was just imagining at the front entrance how many emperors walked through that spot, how many Byzantine emperors walked through that very location. Or I went to Troy and I was thinking about how over the 4,000 years, how we're still thinking about the thing that occurred back then. It's stuff like that that can just let your mind wander off to fascinating places. Or I'm from Pennsylvania and I sometimes wonder what it would be like if... Well, I wonder what the land would have looked like 6,000 years ago when they didn't even have the bow and arrow, and it, it was just endless forest. Are you, are you satisfied, Pat? Do you have another oh, burning yes. question? Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, I often wander around thinking, what if, uh, what if an old building that what used to be here were still here, or uh, what if it were all, uh, if it were all virgin forest still? Ken has a question. Hello. Uh, I was just wondering if you see what you're doing as uh, sort of part of uh, the speculative fiction of the, the multiverse, like uh, Man in the High Castle or even his, his dark material. I'm in a really weird spot where what I'm doing is nonfiction, but it's actually fiction where like I once got a book contract I had to reject and it would have gotten put in the history part of the bookstore where I would have I was writing counterfactuals, but it was in a nonfiction way. So I would be writing like what if the nazis won world war ii but it wouldn't be a narrative it would be a historical analysis i think one of my first experiences of alternative history was um stephen fry's book making history i don't know if you've read that but yeah. that again that's a kind of what if the well it was it's sort of a what if the germans won world war ii but it, it's more of a what if hitler wasn't successful and other things weren't yeah. but it, it, it makes you think about you'll be careful what you wish for because yeah. We might think a particular outcome wasn't very good, but actually the alternative outcome could have been a lot worse. And yeah. um, are you ever tempted to take a particularly optimistic or pessimistic view? Or you, how do you keep that balance? Yeah, one of my moderators actually did an analysis over of my alternate histories where are they more negative or positive than the present? And I think it was either perfectly balanced or it was two-thirds negative, one-third positive. Um I generally think the modern world as it exists is one of the better timelines, but I have no clue. I mean, I, I don't have a giant like magical ball that I can look through and tell me if the, this is a better world. I mean, we're the only frame of reference we have. Yeah. And I guess it depends what side you are on about whether it's a yeah. positive or negative yeah. outcome anyway. Yeah. As an American, we're, I'm predisposed to think it's a better world because America is a pretty wealthy country. It's the most powerful country in the world. But if I'm from Iraq, I think this is a terrible world where things have just gradually gotten worse since the Middle Ages. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that shows us that all all empires rise and fall over yeah. you know, much longer than normal human life span. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that everywhere has had its heyday. Um, exactly. And we'll look back to those glory days, maybe like 4,000 yeah. years later. <laughs> I look forward to the, the rise of the mighty Jamaican Empire. You know, so <laughs> I'll tell you the point for me when I first became aware and fascinated with alternative history. Um, I forget the name of the book. I have it in England somewhere. Uh, but it was what if Queen Victoria had been born 
male. And that was just completely blew, blew my skirt up. Uh, and the whole, the whole point of it was, so up until that point, the Hanoverian rulers of England had also been the kings of Hanover in Germany. And because, um, rulers of Hanover could not be female, she then gave the throne up of Hanover to her cousin, the Duke of Cumberland. So you've had George's one, two, three, four, five. No, not George V is a, is a, is a grandson. Four. And then William, who were all kings of England and also kings of Hanover. And then you have the 1840s, 50s, 60s, which is German reunification un, under, under Prussia. So the summation of the book was if, um, the king of England, if the king of England in, in 1837, when she becomes uh, the queen, had, had been male and also been the king of Hanover, England and Prussia would have gone to war and in effect had been a first world war much sooner than 1914 because Bismarck would have tried to capture Hanover in 1866. And I just thought, bloody hell, this alternative history is amazing. And purely by genetic quirk, Britain didn't go to war with Prussia because German law, uh, the ruler of Hanover, couldn't, couldn't be female. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Do we have any more questions? I know people are asking, uh, saying if they can ask questions on, on the YouTubes. I think what we're going to try and do is at the end of Map Corner, which would be in about 15 minutes time, we'll try and address some of the questions uh, on YouTube. But is there anybody on, on Zoom who's got another question? Nick. Nick Roworth. Crumbs, you dastardly person. Ask your question, Nick. Go for it. I've been watching a few, few of yours and you mentioned the butterfly effect. When, when you're doing them, how difficult does it get as you go along, sort of, you know, changing the history? Because obviously changing one bit of history 
builds on to the next. So how difficult is it to sort of take it forward and how 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 far forward can you take it? And before, one of the group. One of the great benefits of my job is I have absolutely no accountability. So I can like say things and there's no way I can be proven wrong. And so I have no idea if the method I'm using is correct. Um, and for my geopolitics stuff, I always have a rule, only long-term predictions, because that way I have to wait, you have to wait 15 years for me to get disproven and uh, I, I can move along with my life. But um, in general, the butterfly effect gets into very complicated territory. If you push the butterfly effect too far, you just can't get anything done. Like I was talking to a friend and he's like, yeah, I wrote an alternate history where the internet's never formed and then 9-11 never happens. And he has no logical explanation for why that happened. He just said butterfly effect. And I think that's dumb where if you say random things just change without an explanation why, you're basically getting rid of all logic out of the scenario and you can just say whatever you want is going to happen. And so for the way I do it is that after like a couple generations, I don't have anyone, any of the same historic figures born. So a mistake I made many, many years ago was I had a scenario where England won the Hundred Years' War and Joan of Arc was never born and all that stuff. And I had Napoleon be born 800 years later. And in retrospect, I'm like, that's really dumb. And, but in a world where like Sweden wins the Great Northern War in 1700, I still have Napoleon get born because nothing affects Corsica at that point. So Napoleon was born like 1760, right? And if Sweden wins the Great Northern War in like 1710 in Eastern Europe, that would still allow his parents to meet. So I, I try to be as rational as possible about it, where I only change things if the person being born is a really is like a really low chance of happening and, or at the same time it's in a very different part of the world so in a world where genghis khan is never born i would still have montezuma rising up in in mexico because there wasn't really any contact between eurasia and mexico by that point great great Can i just question. ask a quick question before we move on i i can't help but feel like sometimes the real history feels completely mad and arbitrary and, and, and random and partic <laughs> particularly around some of the sort of post-war settlement stuff where like a few diplomats got in a room and drew a map of, drew, drew the map of Europe yeah. at various times you know the, in the last sort of couple of hundred years the way that uh, Africa was carved up through imperialism and so on um you know in the hands of a very small number of people who might have had good intentions but often didn't really understand the lie of the land um it feels to me that sometimes that that's almost unbelievable and uh, and alternative, well, not alternative, but because it, it actually happened, but uh, but arbitrary. You know, if you ever thought about unpicking some obviously arbitrary things that have happened, or what 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 would you pick uh, if mm. you if you think that something that really happened was e easily unpicked because it felt so casually done in the first place? Yeah, I think we have different perspectives on this where. For me, looking at a lot of this stuff, I can see the logic behind it and I can see how the logic would get changed. So scramble for Africa, it was entirely arbitrary for the native inhabitants, but for the British, they had a fort here on the coast, they had a fort here on the coast, this river valley was easy to control. So like giving Belgium, the area that became the Democratic Republic of the Congo looks entirely arbitrary. Why do you give this tiny European country a massive part of Central Africa that 
wouldn't really make sense. But if you see that they were trying to give that big area to a small power that was inoffensive to the European balance of power, aka not Germany, you can see that why they picked Belgium, because the Belgians are never going to attack French, British, or German territories. The Belgians are never going to say, let's make Belgium a world empire. The Germans are. And also, for a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's a single river system. And for places, and so you can change decisions that look arbitrary by changing the balance of power. So like say the scramble for Africa, you could have easily seen a world where the French took over all of central North Africa from Djibouti all the way to Dakar. But the British were slightly more powerful in that era. So they took the Nile Valley. So if you had some sort of world where maybe Britain got stuck fighting a horrifying war with the Americans and the British had to build an extra large fleet so the Americans wouldn't seize Canada. Maybe in that world, the French would have been able to press a British weakness in Africa and take over that massive empire. Uh, great answer. Uh, Ronald Cohn. Calling from 51.49 degrees north and seven, 0.75 degrees west, which is the uh, uh, London borough of Southwark. So my question is, earlier you talked about at length if the Roman Empire had not fallen. And my question is opposite. What if the Roman Empire had not conquered the Iberian Peninsula or Spain, uh, I think in the uh, fourth, uh, no, 200 BC and stay there for 600 years before the uh, Caliphate or the Moors uh, take over? And what would be the impact to where I'm from, which is Venezuela in South America? What would be the impact to the whole continent and to the maps? Uh, have you explored that? Yes. Interesting. So the way you pull that off, basically, is that the Carthaginians had a large influence in southern Spain. They controlled the whole area, and the native tribes of that area actually liked the Carthaginians a lot. So when the Romans conquered conquered Iberia, they were dealing with tribes that, in a lot of ways, it was the Carthaginian remnants fighting off the Romans. And so you, what you would have is a Carthaginian charismatic commander, maybe Hannibal's little brother who exists magically, is able to hold off the Romans. And it would basically have to become a confederacy of the native and Carthaginian influences, because as is, the native population didn't have the ethnic unity to create a state by itself. The Carthaginians had that external influence. But at the same time, the Carthaginians didn't have the manpower to fight off the Romans. And the big advantage of the Roman Republic in that era was that they could just pull on endless amounts of men to keep fighting. And Iberia's population around them was, I'm guessing, 3 million. I don't. That's a ballpark number. Italy's was like 6 million. That's where the Romans could pull troops from. So if the Iberians could drag it out into a lengthy guerrilla campaign, while also keeping their population unified, they could have beat the Romans. If the Romans don't control Spain, they don't control the Western frontier, meaning they can't seize Gaul. Gaul becomes an independent country based under its own influence, so Celtic Spain. And honestly, at that point, I have no idea what's going to happen for South America because it's just so far out. I'm really sorry. Um, the one thing I can say is the Carthaginians were a very navally based people. And so if you have a Carthaginian Celtiberian Spain, that means that the chances that they become navally more important is higher than it was in our world because the Romans were a very land-based empire. And so the chances that they do go out and colonize, I think, are higher than it was in our world. And I have no idea for the Arabs. I have no idea if the Arab conquest would still happen at that point. That's really interesting. I, and as someone who used to live in Granada, where obviously the um, 
the retreat of the Moorish kingdom was quite quite big news there. I can't help but feel like it's it's almost well, it kind of depends what happens next, like you say, because if there was not a caliphate for the Christian kingdoms to be trying to drive out, then it might have looked very, very different because this was all happening at around, you know, that the whole that whole period was very dense between the, the the reconquest of Spain, the discovery of the Americas. It was all happening around the same time. So and and I guess if there hadn't been a sense of a need for a potentially for a religious reason to be doing the conquest of Spain, maybe there wouldn't have been the same drive to go overseas. Who knows? Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure what, like you say, I don't know whether it relates to what happened before the caliphate or whether it relates to the caliphate itself. We could be here all day on that. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Gladwin, you've got a question for us, Andy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hi there, Roger. You'd read more about East Tennessee than anywhere else. I was just wondering yeah. why that was. <laughs> so I'm of part Scots-Irish heritage, and my family's originally from, my mother's side's originally from that area. They fought for the Confederacy, then switched over to the Union, and then moved out to Kansas. And um, I my speciality for American history is cultural history. And so the area I've read the most about is the South. And it's something to do with, it was some weird aberration where once you account for colonial histories and histories of the West, East Tennessee became that area. So we've had a question on the chat as well from um, from Matthew, which says, what if the British colonized Latin America instead of the Spanish? Well, it wouldn't have been Latin America for a start, I guess. British Interesting question, Matt. And I think I've made a video about this actually, Matt. So English move West and the English discover America before the Spanish do. The English action, there's a historical argument that the English actually did know about America before the Spanish did, that Bristol fishermen were operating off the coast of Newfoundlands. But in this world, the British catch the southerly current, sail past the Azores, hit the Caribbean, colonize the Aztecs and the Peruvians in the same way the Spanish did. And honestly, I think it would be a much better world. So there are generally two arguments about why South America and Latin America is poorer than North America. Um, actually, there's three arguments. One of its geography, one of which is that the once the Spanish conquered the native peoples, they constructed oppressive exploitative structures. And the third is that the structures the British brought to Latin America or the British or Spanish brought to uh, the New World reflected the countries back at home. And then they went out in different ways. And I'm part of the third school where like the Spanish created a colonial structure of a lot of monopolies. The central government had a huge amount of control. They didn't give the native populations a lot of independent action. And so my guess is that the British would have constructed a, or the English at this point, would have constructed a joint stock company like the British East India Company and would have used it to colonize Mexico. 17th century England was having huge population expulsions due to um, the British civil wars and stuff. So you would have seen massive European immigration to the area that became Latin America. A lot of them would have died of disease, but a lot of them would have also moved into areas like the central Mexican highlands that has a much more temperate climate. Um, you would have seen Latin America develop much more like North America did in our world. Um, something else to consider is that it would have made the English crown far more powerful because the revenue from the colonies would have probably gone to the English king. It would have also gone to the mercantile classes. So you would have seen a strengthening of both 
the crown and the mercantile classes, which would have had ramifications in the English Civil War. But I'm not sure who would win in the English Civil War, the parliamentarians or the royalists. I also don't think all the English would have migrated to the Latin America because groups like the Puritans were explicitly looking for a colder land to settle. So I'm guessing the Puritans still settle in New England, but the excess population that goes to the Caribbean instead, like the people who went to the American South in our world, that would have probably left the American South open to French settlement. Tell you what we should do, Claire. Why don't we rattle through the various beats that we need to do, social media yeah. roundup, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can fold up our maps on Map Corner, but still keep the stream going if people want one to uh, ask Rajad any more questions. So, uh, Claire, do we have any news on the socials this month? We do have some updates on the social media. Um, with a little bit more action on the um, Twitter feed this month, and that's on the hashtag Map Corner. Um, had some great stuff that um, Magic and Mungo's retweeted. Um, one was around different ways of splitting up the UK, and one of some maps that I'd never really seen before. Like that we were all familiar with, I don't know, the Anglo-Saxon groups and so on and so forth. But this one was uh, districts of the major generals and garrison towns, um, which. It's just a map I've never, ever seen before. It's quite interesting. Uh, one that we uh, had some discussion about was the uh, reimagining each UK county as a US state. Um, I particularly enjoyed the Isle of Wight as Hawaii um, and uh, Northern Ireland as Alaska. But uh, there's, uh, if you're in the UK or the US or you have some understanding of the UK counties and the US states, uh, there's certainly plenty of um, uh, things to think about on, on that. And that's Claire, the can I just say... I had proper beef with that map. I know, I know. Right. Isles of Scilly should have been Hawaii for a start off. Incredibly warm. Yeah, like, I guess. And the, the really Cornwall is Florida. I sort of get that. I had that much of a problem with that map that I said, I'm going to do my own and post it. And it's yeah, a work well, in progress. That's all I'm saying. Crack on That's with what that I'm but then, then when both uh, Dr. Shoplin and Magic and Mungo's also posted this um, great uh, definition of a bit of history about the, the, the way that UK postcodes work, um, which I think we perhaps touched on before we talked about the address book. But um, it's based on cognitive psychology. And I think I, I totally get it because I think our postcode system is it looks kind of weird compared to the rest of the world. But it is so much easier to remember and to place things based on the way that our postcode system works in the UK. So um, that's that's a good read. And then on Facebook, our most popular uh, post in the last month has been uh, Robin Pickering's Identify the Countries quiz, which like no one will be surprised by because we in Map Corner, we love a quiz and we love identifying countries by their outlines and flags. Uh, right up our straight, that was a lot of people engaged with that. Um, and we've had some good uh, postings from the, uh, uh, well, I won't, from the from the southern hemisphere, let's put it that way, uh, with uh, Marilyn Little and uh, Brett Watkins posting from New Zealand and from Australia about um, you know, lo locations there and the way that we compare the size, just the absolute size of Western Australia to other things. So uh, that was uh, some of the stuff that's been going on in the last month. And if you want to be part of the discussion, post your favourite maps to us, have a bit of a chat, do a quiz, whatever. Uh, then do join the Map Corner Facebook group and uh, or look out the hashtag Map Corner on Twitter. Smashing. Right, folks, it is quiz answer time. Right, so I know Pat over there 
in Northern Ohio was getting very antsy. He said, Royfield need to know the answers to the quiz. Right, so question number one, which of these nations does Roger not tip for Super Bowl status in 2080? You had either India, France or Australia. The answer is Australia. Um, why are we not going to be living under the, the boot of the Australians in 2080, Rodyard? Um, it's difficult to answer negative questions, but I would say that they have no desire to be an empire. Uh, they're already part of the American umbrella. They don't have population growth that makes them want to go outwards. Smashing. There's your answer, folks. Question number two, where was the Khorasan based? A, Turkey, B, Uzbekistan, C, Mongolia. And the question was B, Uzbekistan. Got that one right, I did. Very for me. Question number three, which of these countries wasn't part of the Austronesian migration? I actually got this one wrong, though I actually did know the answer in a, in a weird way. Um, the answer was B, Cambodia. Most people don't know the Austronesian migration. Uh, what was it exactly, Rodyard? So southeastern China, there was um, the native inhabitants in our have gradually been pushed out by people from the Yangtze like 10,000 years ago with the invention of agriculture. They became the population of Taiwan, who in turn became the population of the Philippines. And then they had an epic migration outwards from the Philippines, settling practically all of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia. Then they jumped across the whole Indian Ocean from Borneo to Madagascar in like 200 AD, uh, became the dominant population of Madagascar. Then they sailed the, along the top coast of New Guinea to um, stopping at inlets. Then they settled the whole Pacific and Polynesia areas like that. They are the Polynesians mixing with the Melanesian population of New Guinea. Then they went to Hawaii and New Zealand. I remember being utterly shocked when I discovered only about 10 years ago that uh, New Zealand was only colonized by humans in like the 13th century. I, I just presumed yes. it would have been eons beforehand. But yes, this migration yeah. was relatively recent in human history and was incredibly extensive. But for one of the, yes. but um, our history, our understanding of history is so Eurocentric based that we don't know this. We, you know, the average person doesn't know this. Uh, question number four, what was it once illegal to sell in Iceland? And the answer is alcohol. Um, why was that, Rudyard? Uh, more hard liquor, actually. They produced beer. They, they could, I mean, everyone drank beer in that era, but the Danes, who were their colonial masters, thought the Icelanders were too immature for hard liquor and wow. they couldn't drink it properly. And because Iceland didn't have any trees and they couldn't build any ships, they really weren't in a negotiating position with the Danes. And so the Danes just didn't sell them any. Ah, there you go. Uh, question number five, what does Rudyard credit the establishment of Paraguay by Spanish settlers? It was B, polygamy. I always thought it was the Jesuits that were, were big in, in Paraguay, but um, obviously got that slight, slightly wrong. Uh, tell us about the story of polygamy uh, founding so, the modern state. So farming was part of that, I'm not going to lie. Um, the initial population was Spanish conquistadors, and they tried to settle the area around Argentina, but the native populations there were really aggressive, and so they couldn't stay there. And so they went a 1,600 miles upriver to what's now Paraguay, and they formed an alliance of the native Guarani woman, where each Spanish man took many, many, many different native brides, and then that's what the modern population of Paraguay basically is. 
Yeah, the, sa- the same thing happens in Brazil because the Tupi, which were from the coast of yes. Brazil, and the Guarani are from the same family. And they had like this yes. culture where the chief like of a tribe, he gives his daughters like to an LA. Yes. And so the Portuguese and Spanish yes. were really lucky yeah, yeah, to, to find those kind of people. Yes. It's, it's Is that a- the area around Sao Paulo? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, great. Actually, yeah. actually, the whole Brazilian coast. One of the fascinating things about Paraguay, which is obviously one of the side effects uh, of that rule, uh, that law, was that it's the only country in South America where a European language isn't the dominant language. Guarani is the dominant language of Paraguay. And funnily enough, there's also an analogy with that in Haiti, isn't there, where uh, when the French were losing uh, their, their grip on this rebellious colony, one of the possible laws which was um, established, one of the laws which was established by the colonial French just before Toussaint and his generals kicked the French out completely was um, everybody could ha- every man could have three wives, a black wife, a mulatto wife and a white wife is a way of placating uh, the, the, uh, the slaves and the, and the African masses. But, of course, it never came to pass. Uh, question... I'd like to point out that this is a, polygamy is kind of polite way of basically saying systematised rape here, but just putting that out there. I wouldn't disagree with you there, Claire. There's, there's a reason why fundamentally, as, a, as a, an institution, it's never really um, stuck around because it's various moral problems. Question number seven. What proportion of the British Empire population was Indian in 1925? And the answer was C, 70%. Crumbs. India was the jewel in the crown. And question number eight, the last question, uh, where have we found potential, stretch on, uh, stress on the word potential, evidence that the Romans may have discovered the Americas? It's on the Brazilian coast. Uh, Roger, what exactly was this evidence, sir? I did this video like four years ago, and uh, if I get the info wrong, Belloc's probably going to correct me. But um, I think there, there's a large amount of pottery found in Rio Bay that could be of Roman origin. There was something about Phoenicians. Yes. I don't know. Maybe yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I, again, it's kind of difficult to say. I'm, I don't think the Romans were having a large scale settlement or large amounts of activity in Rio, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if a Roman boat got blown off course and sank there especially the way oceanic currents work. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of the author, but there's the book, is it 1429, which has now been kind of largely debunked, but it's re- yeah. really seductive, isn't it, about uh, yeah. these large mo- uh, mahogany Chinese ships going throughout the world. And, and we know that this yeah. did actually happen under a Chinese admiral. And they went all the way down the East African coast. We know that happened, went to India, the East African coast. But he speculates that they crossed, uh, the, went past the Cope of Goodhorn, went to the New World. And, the, and he says there is fragmented, scattered evidence of, of uh, mm. Chinese mariners being, being washed up. But it, yes. it's a rip-roaring read, though largely debunked. Um, right, so I'm going on to gallery view, uh, good people. Um, Ken McDonald normally does extremely well in, in these quizzes. Hello, Theodore. You look new to us, uh, Theodore. Um, welcome. Who got all eight right? Hold your hand up. Who got seven? Six. Yay, well done, Bella. Yay, well done, sir. You win. You win the much-vaunted, very prestigious 
um, map corner quiz. Now, hmm, here's the thing. Um, this is your prize. Your prize is that you can do an audio postcard on, on a future episode of Map Corner. Basically, what that means is you tell us about where you live. Record it as an MP3, maybe do it on your phone, email it through to us. Uh, will you be able to do that, sir? Yes, I will. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, did, did I, was it Sao Paulo where you are? Right in Rio. Rio. We would love right to know about Rio. Claire, wouldn't you love to hear more about Rio from somebody from Rio? I totally would. Fantastic. Well, there you go. Next month's audio postcard comes all the way from Brazil. Now, Claire, yeah, do uh, we, just before... Sorry, go on. Claire, uh, do we have a map fact of the month? We do. Um, I did a lot of digging today on my map for the month and um, I found uh, a map which was showing which US states Googled chess more and which ones Googled poker more, um, which is interesting enough as itself. But actually, the thing that I'm having as my map fact of the month was that every state of Mexico Googled chess more than they Googled poker, which will tell you something about the... Um, I don't know, the, the intellectual uh, interests of uh, Mexico, or certainly maybe they're just not into poker, don't know. But uh, just, just to show, chess is more popular than poker in Mexico. That's my fact of the month. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Now, Claire, is it time for us to uh, fold up our maps? Yep. So uh, next month's recording will be the 3rd of April, and uh, don't forget to leave us a review. Other than that, it's time to fold up our maps. There you go, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, rather exciting uh, edition of Map Corner with Rodyard Lynch. Tararabit, toodlepip, bye bye. Zachary Davis, Shane Redfield, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Brian I, Free, Rudyard Lynch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, BT Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content Seven, creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com shop. 